Don't be a Roman. It's better than rinsing your teeth with urine. I have a dream. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created. If he had not been aware of that, he literally, literally had not been aware of what had transpired. And with all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson and Rob Long. I'm James Lilacs, and today, say no more, we got John Hughes. So let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast, number 565. Join us at ricochet.com, where don't you be part of the most interesting and stimulating conversations of community on the web. I can vouch for that. Rob can vouch for that. Peter Robinson could vouch for that if he was here. He's a little bit late, but I'm sure that Rob and I can fill up the space with you know, sufficient oh, yeah. power. I have so much power. I'm, um, I'm, I'm yeah. all right. I'm, 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 I feel like I'm good. I, I, uh, as you know, I believe that despair is a sin, and so I try never to have any despair. Um, yes. Although I, I, I'm a little bit more despairing. I just um, – yeah, you know, you look at the news and and uh, and you read, the, and I'm trying not to follow politics. I think politics is boring, essentially. But um, it, 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 here's what I think. I think that I, I talk to a lot of people who say um, to me, um, uh, you know, I everyone else is crazy, right? Everyone else, I, why isn't there? And then they'll describe this sort of ideal political outcome, which is used something, you know, basically center rightish, center rightish, you know. The people that I know, anyway, and then uh, even the liberals that I know were sort of center leftish. Where I mean, somebody took issue with what I said last week, I think. But you know, center left country, I mean, that tend to be socially a little bit more centrist to right, and then, but like in terms of government spending, you know, ten people tend in this country, even self-proclaimed Republicans, conservatives, tend to be kind of on the left, like government spending. It, you know, maybe not three trillion, but one trillion is fine. That kind of thing. Um, and so I kind of don't. I mean, everyone says the thing. Everyone, everyone has identified themselves as different and reasonable, and everybody else is insane. And then I read this piece uh, this week uh, about somebody who did a study of propaganda. And Peter just joined this, so I'm, I'm, I'll just finish this quickly. Hi, Peter. Um, uh, and and the propaganda is really interesting because the, prop- the the point of propaganda is supposed to be to make a point, right? Um, you know, North Korea. North Korea's victory, we are marching to the future. And the, the point of it ostensibly is to make you feel that your North Korea is marching to the future. But it actually doesn't work that way. Propaganda doesn't convince you of what propaganda is supposed to convince you of, just in terms of you know psychological research. Um, what it does convince you of is two things. One, that the, the state is very powerful because the state has put up propaganda. So they must be very powerful because they've surrounded you with propaganda. They haven't actually made, changed your mind. You're just now cowed by the fact that the state is so powerful they have propaganda posters everywhere. And the second thing it does is it convinces you that everyone else you know is a moron and believes this crap. And so um, people, the re- reaction to have propaganda isn't, I, I agree with it. It's, I disagree with it, but I know my stupid neighbors believe it. In which case... It is successful in a way. It does what it's supposed to do by not doing what it's supposed to do. It doesn't convince you to change your mind, but it convinces you that everybody you know is a robot and uh, and a and a and a, uh, an automaton and easily easily cowed. So 
So where's the propaganda coming from in your mind? Oh, well, everybody's got, a, everybody's got an axe to grind. I, did, I was on this thing last week, uh, and I, I, I wish I could find it. I can't find it because, of course, it was pitched to me as like, oh, you're going to be on MSNBC, uh, which, of course, I would never turn down. And, I, I, and it wasn't. It was something on called um, – it was on Peacock. Plus, or I don't know what the hell it is, but some some version of MSNBC that's streaming, and then it has a there's a show on that I was on, and um, I was on with Sally Cohn and Dean Obadila, I believe is his name, and these are people who are mm-hmm. basically the Pete Hegseth and someone else of Fox News, right? There, that's their their version of that kind of. Although I'm doing them, uh, they're doing the Fox News people the service, I think. Um, and it's just like you're through the looking glass. So I, you know, they're furious about uh, uh, Mansion and cinema, and they're furious. It's outrageous. How how could two senators subvert the will of the people? You know, the Senate wants to do one thing, and they're the ones holding it up. And I thought, well, that's interesting math because one way to look at it is that there are 52 senators in the United States who think that three zillion trillion dollars is too much and it's 48 who thinks it's just right um but they don't you know (laughs) like they don't see it that way they see that like there's 50 senators who don't count at all because they're from states and they're they are conservative or republicans and there's only 50 that count and of the 50 48 want something and two don't so the 48 are really the majority um, and I kind of felt like that was emblematic of the way we behave in the country. So they, when I said, well, you know, actually, I feel like for Democrats, cinema and mansion are the way out. This is a solution for you. You should be looking to them. They're, they, you know, right. if, if, if either one of them is going to be replaced by a senator in their state, it's not going to be a Democrat. It's certainly not going to be a progressive Democrat. It's going to be an even more conservative Democrat or a Republican. Um, and they looked at me like I was insane. Because, of course, to them, I am insane. And I, that, so that's my mm-hmm. rambling um, well, to us, too, half the time, so you <laughs> yeah, really, <laughs> you're doing something so marvelous, Rob. But uh, I, I don't, I'm sorry to have joined late. I was monkeying around with my new microphone, which uh, uh, Blue Yeti tells me brings me up to the level at last of Rob's microphone. Okay, but um, I caught just enough of what you were saying about propaganda to be reminded of a conversation I had, I don't know, five years ago, whatever it was, with... Um, Nathan Sharansky, who is Anatoly Sharansky, of course, was a refusenik in the Soviet Union and spent nine years in Soviet jails. But he said almost exactly what you said, that what the propaganda did was not convince you, it cowed you. You could tell the truth at home, but only in your immediate family. Fathers and mothers would tell children from a very, very early age, kindergartenish age, what they could say to their fellow kindergartners. And there were certain things you were only allowed to say at home. When Stalin died, they were thrilled at home. His father explained to him that a very good thing had happened, particularly for the Jewish people in Russia. But at school, he should cry with the other children. <laughs> so he did. Right. Right? And, and, and then this notion that you don't know who believes it, um, it's atomizing. It just breaks down the system. And, and I have I, this is, now you're going to call me crazy, and feel free. I, maybe I'm making much too much of it. But 
In my life, here's what's been happening over the last week or two. My workplace is reopened. Northern California is reopening. And here's what people do when they meet each other. Are we, are we shaking yeah. hands or are bumping we, what, elbows? Uh, how, how, what, are, are we, we taking the mask yeah. off? Yeah. Which side are you right. on is really what's going on. Which side are you on? And it's, it, it's oh, that person insists that he's scared. He's erratic. It, 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 it is atomizing people. It is breaking us into yeah. little tiny fragments of what used to be a perfectly comfortable, convivial society. It, it's also super hum- a superhuman well, attitude, right? Because it relies on your extremely dim view of your neighbor and your your colleague and your uh, fellow American, right? So, you know, the, we don't, I mean, this, I'm, these are going to be all examples from the left, but I'm sure there's some examples from the right. Um, we don't want you to wear a mask because we don't want to tell you they're effective because then you'll buy them and you, you, will dip, you, you won't care that doctors and nurses won't have a mask. We won't tell you that this is surely a man-made virus that escaped from a Chinese lab, uh, for whatever reason, however it did, because then you'll be mad at Chinese people. We won't tell you that the virus is going to spread and that it's dangerous because then you won't go to Chinese New Year. Uh, and so will, you know, Nancy Pelosi will stand at the Grant Street gates in San Francisco and uh, Bill de Blasio will stand in Chinatown and say, come on down, have a fun party. What do you, what do you, why are you, we won't tell you these things because we're sure you're a moron and you're venal and you're unable to make distinctions. You're so dumb that you won't know how to handle the truth. And that is sort of like that impulse to think that your neighbors are stupid. Um, unfortunately, some of my neighbors are, but, but <laughs> that, that leads you to believe that it doesn't matter whether the propaganda is working on me because I know it's working on that moron next door. And right. uh, that is what leads right. us to like n- never trying to actually tell people the truth because we think that they won't – they alone they, – they specifically won't be able to handle it. We, of course, can handle it. We know what the truth really is. They can't. Peter Thiel once remarked to me, I can't remember the context, but he said, you know, I have noticed that everybody believes advertising works, but not on them. Right. Right? Same kind of thing. Oh, well. Oh, well. Uh, well, um, Gavin Newsom, I don't I, I, I don't know if I want to prolong this open chat with <laughs> the so particular, particular madness taking place. Gavin Newsom has now announced that the vaccination is going to be mandated for school children but not for teachers, or there are right. much, much looser requirements right. for teachers. This is not only not following the science, <laughs> this is turning the science upside down. The younger you are, the less likely you are to transmit the disease, and by far the less likely you are right. to suffer from it in any serious way. So here in California, where we're being told day in and day out that the liberal establishment is the enlightened establishment, they're the ones who are following the science. We are now, the, the next major move is something that is totally, utterly unscientific. It is, it is, all right, I'll stop because you can see blood pressure rising. The people who believe that the number of rising cases is the only indication that you need, the fact that there are schools opening and they're testing more and they're finding more positive tests means that all of these children are essentially suicide bombers who are going to run from the classroom into the nursing homes, pull a cord, explode, and shower everybody with COVID. Right. 
Um, and so that we, you know, we have to, the following the science is to get the vaccine into everybody and then the mask up and then to do that for another year. So I remember seeing, you know, you, you, you still to this day see all of these tweets of people saying, especially in New York, why, are, why the F are people going to restaurants? I can't believe it. To which somebody responded, lol, we're living our lives. Right. We're not going to be cowed. Right. We're going to get out there. Right. To which somebody responded, how evil and vile can you be? So it's <laughs> evil and vile right. to say I'm vaccinated and I'm going to go to the restaurant. That's how we redefined it. But when Rob was talking about propaganda, I mean, the propaganda from the state as it results to just using the term of the government broadcasting information or what they want you to think, it's it's not good propaganda work by them because it's so fragmented it's all over the place it's just it's a mess and it varies from state to state and place to place so the the general issue the general feeling that i get is not the power of the state but the incompetence mm. of the state to be able to figure out what to say and the second thing is is that as far as the the volunteer state media that you have the cnn has been right. below a million viewers for months now so that's not exactly working the propaganda that's interesting is the stuff that's coming as a volunteer effort from the people who, <coughs> pardon me, are the equivalent of the kid who lived across the hall from Winston Smith in 1984. The little ones with the little, you know, young communist badges right. and scarves and the rest of it always on the lookout for thought crime. And that's the interesting part about this to me, is that when we say that, you know, we say we can't say this out loud in public because we're in right. trouble. It's not because of a government mandate that's going to ship us off to the gulag. It's because we're going to be beset upon by the, all the people who are sitting right. with their steno pens waiting for Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle to say something wrong. And that's the fascinating thing to me. Rob started this out by saying that he didn't believe in despair. I you know, agree. And the interesting thing about this era is that there are truly so many things about which one can despair. That when the mind tires of one, it can find refreshment in another. I guess. <laughs> but you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about before we run to the break is something that everybody knows and everybody sees. And good enough, we can talk about it. Gas prices are going up. Yeah. Inflation is supposedly going to be pegged at 11 percent. They've said that $175 a month is what it's now costing Americans in terms of that. A piece in the Atlantic echoes what everybody knows, which is why are we sort of out of everything? Why, when you go to Target at 10 o'clock in the morning, do the shelves look like uh, Saturday night at, at, at 9 at night? Everybody knows that there's this contraction. There's this things have gone wrong. And it's very, very I'm sorry, and it's very, very specific. It's not the sort of general malaise we had in Carter's era. Mm -hmm. It's not that sort of strange... Oh, have we lost our way? Can we not do anything right that we had in the you know in the early '90s, which people have forgot about? This is very tangible and specific, and right. it's showing up in Joe Biden's poll numbers, right. which are fantastically bad. So there's an opportunity here, and I'm not wanting to, you know I'm not going to stand there and you know do the old thing where you point out the window and say the polls the polls will help us, but come the next election and the one after that, there are opportunities here. And I think that despair, while understandable, perhaps is ill-advised when we consider that that they've tried and it's failing, and it's failing in front of everybody's eyes. Yeah, and they're the party, or at least right now they are. They seem like the party of scarcity. 
Yes, yes. And bleakness. And it's funny because they, they, they really they, – they, 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 they have the upper hand on this. They, traditionally, liberals do have the upper hand on the, you know, the, the new world and this and that, and we're going to give you this, and we're going to have this, and everything's going to be better. Uh, they, 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 should have a, they should be playing a better hand, just you know, the way these things go. And yet they always – there's a very sort of late 20th century attitude from the, from the liberals, from the left, which is like, get, get ready. It's going to get bad. They, they've been doing this since the 60s, since, you know, the post-war mm-hmm. boom. And it takes a sunny optimist. And I think I, think, <laughs> I, think I can say who the, our, our favorite sunny optimist is on this podcast to come along and say, okay, yeah, you, this, this, and this is bad. But everything's going to be great because we're Americans and everything's great. This is why I, I, I'm absolutely baffled and confused every day by the current mood in, and even my own mood. Because, I mean, when, I, when you say this to people, left and right, they go, yeah, you're right. We have a we, – we had a, vac- a vaccine in 10 months that works. Four different kinds. Right. And then poor Merck, they were writing articles about Merck a month ago saying, poor Merck. Merck's the big pharma left out of the bonanza. Poor Merck. And then Merck comes in last week and says, oh, actually, we have a treatment medication. We've, 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 we've developed something for treatment, which, of course, the vaccines don't do. We have a genuine red pill. Right. So <laughs> this is American enterprise. This American scientific enterprise and genius that comes entirely from the free market. This is a great moment. They, I, I'm a broken record. We, we have revealed, I mean, you, it, it, you have to twist yourself into a pretzel to believe that the teachers' unions in this country care about students or care about science or that they, they want even want to go back to work. They don't. Um, it's fantastic. We're, we're winning. 1977, light switch. Sanborn House, Dartmouth College. Sanborn House was the home of the English department, which was the home of Jeff Hart, who was the one sure. conservative at, well, that's not quite true, but he was, he was a leading conservative at Dartmouth and, a, and an editor at National Review, and my hero. And Jimmy Carter gives his Malay speech, and on this light switch, as on many light switches across the campus, goes up, goes up a sticker that says, turn out the lights. And in his very distinctive handwriting, unsigned, but every kid knew who it was, underneath, Jeff Hart wrote, produce more electricity. (laughs) And on that light switch lay the great divide. And every, at least I and my buddies all said, he's our guy. Not the turn out the lights, but that was exactly where Jimmy Carter then and Joe Biden now have placed the Democratic Party. They are the party of scarcity. Right. Because we should, we, because we should be in the, we, we should be humble. We should realize that we are killing the earth. We should realize that none of the, right. that none of the conveniences that we take for granted should be granted to us because they are the product of an immoral system. Like, for example, I mean, the very idea that we pollute the planet in order to produce electricity for, for, for common items the Romans got by perfectly well with a stick that had some fabric on it, and then they would they would use that to to brush their teeth, and then they would whiten their teeth with urine. If it was good enough for the Romans, I don't know why we have to have some fancy well, sort of stuff. And if you're thinking, why would anybody, for heaven's sake, if you rinse your teeth with urine? Well, it worked for them. However, as much as I admire the Romans, we have made some improvements. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, I want you to fill in the blank. Brush, floss, then what? 
Well, if you didn't say win, <laughs> yeah, that was good. I like that one. I, yeah, it was so Mark unexpected. He I couldn't even interrupt it. It was too exciting. teeth to kill bad breath germs and help strengthen enamel. Thankfully, the oral care experts at Quip have created a super simple way to make mouthwash part of your daily oral care routine. You know Quip, of course. They're the makers of the electric toothbrush and floss you hear about all the time. Stuff I use, I love it. Well, they've launched a new mouthwash to help you complete your clean. Plus, it comes in a refillable dispenser that's delightful to use and sleek enough to fit on any bathroom counter. Quip mouthwash kills bad breath germs, helps prevent cavities, and leaves you feeling fresh thanks to a formula that gives your mouth everything it needs and nothing it does not. There are four times concentrate as fluoride, xylitol, and CPC, but they left out the artificial colors and stinging alcohol you find in a lot of the other rinses. Quip's refillable mouthwash is good for your mouth and the planet. With a four times concentrated formula, Quip ships less water and more good for you ingredients come to your door. Each eco friendly refill replaces that big, bulky 470 milliliter bottle you know, from those other brands. And Quip's refill bottles are made from 100% recyclable plastic. Mouthwash is the perfect finishing touch to a complete oral care routine. Pair it with a quick electric toothbrush for adults and kids and one of our refillable flossers, and you'll be surprised at how easy and fun it can be to keep your whole mouth healthy. And Quip is now a great-tasting, good-for-you gum that can help your teeth clean between brushings. Along with the mouthwash, Quip also delivers fresh brush heads, floss, and toothpaste refills every three months from $5. you priced toothbrushes lately? Yeah, that's a good price. And shipping's free. So you can save money and skip all the hustle and bustle of in-store shopping. With affordable refills plus free shipping, it's so easy to keep your whole mouth healthy. Join the over 5 million mouths already using Quip and start swishing today. And if you go to getquip.com slash ricochet5, right now you can get $5 off a mouthwash starter kit. That's $5 off a mouthwash starter kit, which includes a refillable dispenser and a 90-dose supply of Quip's four times concentrated formula at getquip.com slash ricochet and the number 5. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Ricochet 5. Quip, the good habits company. And we thank Quip for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. And now we are obliged to bring back to the podcast John He's the Ricochet fast feud reviewer of par excellence. Also, of course, our senior Supreme Court analyst. In spare time is the Emanuel Fellow Professor of Law at University of California, Berkeley. And he is also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, as well as a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, where I'm sure he just drops by all the time and says, just visiting, and then just, you know, everyone just waits for this guy to leave. He also co-hosts the Pacific Century Podcast with Michael Austin. You cannot follow him on Twitter because he's a sensible man, and he is not on Twitter at all, all kidding aside. John, always a pleasure to talk to you. How are you doing today? Great, great. Thanks for having me back. Well, good. Who canceled, by the way? Didn't somebody cancel? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Supreme Court starts its term uh, very soon. What should we we be looking for? I think this is going to be a great term. You've got three new justices, three Trump justices, and the cases everybody's been waiting for, one on abortion, one on guns. All we need are drugs and rock and roll, and Rob (laughs) will be really happy. Hey, John, could I ask uh, first, we want to get to the substance of the cases. As far as I can tell, it's fascinating. The press is framing it as as an explosive term. We'll come to all that. But the first thing I noticed is that Judge Mr. Justice Thomas, during their first session uh, in-person oral arguments, what was this last week, they've now, um, instead of just interrupting the counsel who's making an argument and just peppering him with questions from the bench. And for year in and year out, Justice Thomas, as far as I can recall, only spoke up twice in the last, what, more than two decades since he joined the court. This time he 
open to questioning because they've decided that now they're going to go, they're going to question at least for part of the time in order of seniority. And he just question after question after question. Is this a change in his, out, what, uh, what's going on? And it sounds to me as though it's a glorious thing. If, if, if Mr. Justice Thomas is now a major visible voice for the court, of course, always in chambers, but now we get to see him. This is great, isn't it? What's going on? No, this is a great case of giving liberals everything they ask for and more. Right? They used to complain. He never said anything. He never asked any questions. Why doesn't he talk more? And now they're going to be sorry that he's changed his mind. Now he's talking all the time, which you know, anybody who knows him and seen him in public outside the court knows he loves to talk. Uh, part of it, this is what you could call right. the uh, COVID hangover on the Supreme Court. During COVID, they didn't meet in person. And so because it was like here, I actually still don't understand how the three of you keep track of who gets to speak in what order, right? But because you can't see anybody, you had to go to a specific order to ask questions in Zoom world. And so it went in order of seniority. So Justice Thomas always went right after the Chief Justice. And it's like, guess what, right. Mikey? He likes it. Right. And so now he's decided, I think, to let it loose. And he's gonna. I'm sure he's going to keep asking Questions because he got comfortable in the role. Second most important reason why is because of all the retirements, he's now the senior. Believe this, can you believe this, guys? We were all out for his confirmation hearings. Now he is the oldest, longest serving justice on the court. Not the oldest. Is so Stephen Breyer still older? Isn't he? All right. Yeah, he's yes. now this old, right. the most senior. He's been on the court the longest. And so that means he gets to wow. uh, speak right after right. the Chief Justice. If he's in the majority of the court and the chief justice isn't, he gets to assign the opinion. Hopefully that means he'll write more majority opinions. It means that he's really the one who can drive the intellectual direction of the court now for as long as he chooses and cannot, to stay there. You, you know this, but you've worked with him. But um, my exposure to him is very small. Uh, but just from the dramatic point of view, even setting aside that he's a brilliant man and a, and, and a, and a going to breathe new life into original setting all that aside he has this the most beautiful voice and a really commanding magnetic presence don't you agree actually <laughs> peter <laughs> i think <laughs> he doesn't right. have the english accent but so he um i've always uh, i te used to tease him that he's wasting his gifts on the Supreme Court <laughs> because he's one of the most compelling speakers I've ever seen. You could just go on YouTube and see any number of speakers, yeah. and he's really he's quite mesmerizing when he speaks. He has that voice, the laugh. He's very humble, but he has uh, often radical things to say. So a, a movie, a movie trailer voiceover artist is what you think he's, his, his true color should have been. He's the lilacs of the Supreme <laughs> Court. In a world. In a world where jurisprudence has. Um, John, so I'm trying to frame this right. Because so, we're, 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 I'm asking you to do the impossible, which is, you know, which I, I think is probably a quixotic mission, but I can do it anyway. Yeah, it's a, every day So, you have this gigantic drum roll for the next, for this upcoming. Supreme Court session, I guess, year. Um, how bad is this going to be for Rachel Maddow? 
You know what I mean? Like, how bad is this going to be? I mean, I, I don't mean, like, how bad are they going to make it or say it is. But really, ultimately, how bad is it going to be? I, I, I feel like I, – I just I, – I, I guess my, my perspective on the Supreme Court is that, you know, they're not going to – they're not really going to – what's a famous thing? They, they, they do read election returns. Um, how bad is it going to be for the left? How disappointing is it going to be for the, for the anticipatory right? What's going to – at the end – a year from now, what are we going to be saying about the, this Supreme Court? It's a quote, one of my favorite TV shows, Winter <laughs> is Coming, for Rachel Maddow and the left. Because, and I'll, here's a little anecdote. So I was doing a panel at the – at Berkeley just this week on the Supreme Court term that was and the one that's coming. And the first time in my lifetime, from a young law student all the way to, so for the first time in 30 years, all we talked about was what do conservatives think. Hmm. We did not talk at all, not once, about what liberals thought anymore. This is a, this is a radical change since the Warren Court. All we ever talked about is liberal theory of this, Autonomy, that privacy, this, you know, the made up rights of the Constitution and judges deciding essentially what's good for us in terms of separation mm-hmm. of powers and states. For the first time, remember, all we talked about was why does Justice Thomas think this, but Justice Kavanaugh think that? Right? It was all a discussion, even amongst liberal professors, about why are the conservatives agreeing or disagreeing? And nobody cared what Justices Breyer or Kagan or Sotomayor thought anymore. So that's the long term. Winter's coming. That's going to go on for at least as long as Justice Thomas is on the court because now we have five, if not six, conservatives. So the argument is going to just be how do the conservatives build the majority to five? The short term, the thing that's going to get them to pull the hair out is abortion rights, even if they're not overturned this term, even if Casey and Roe survive, it's going to be a much, much narrower abortion right. And it's going to be another effort by conservatives to chip away at Roe, chip away at Roe until there's a point where it can be overturned. And that's, I think, the single dominant issue for liberals. It isn't for conservatives in terms of the Constitution. John, may I ask you to explain stare decisis, and let me give you what's in my head. There was the lead editorial in the New Yorker maybe one or two weeks ago was was a defense of Roe. And I read the whole thing, and I thought, oh, my goodness. There isn't even an attempt to make a legal argument defending Roe. Zero. And, of course, we know that even as legal, as liberal a jurist as the late and sainted to their side, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, put in print that she had doubts about whether Roe was rightly decided. Cass Sunstein, a leading liberal today, Roe, bad decision. As a legal matter, bad decision. All they seem to have left is it's settled law. It's been half a century. People have lived their lives according to this. And that brings us, I think, the central issue will be, or a central issue will be, stare decisis, which I don't quite understand. Well, what I'd ask the writers who read the piece you read is, how is anything you say about Roe or Casey different than Plessy versus Ferguson? The case that said segregation was okay. And then why was it okay for the Supreme Court to toss it all out in basically a few paragraphs in Brown versus Board of Education? Uh, but, Peter, you asked so one de- of the central Define stare decisis. Tell, tell yeah. us what stare decisis. You asked one of the central 
dilemmas of uh, constitutional law in the Supreme Court, um, which is uh, how, why do you keep faith with past decisions even when you're convinced they're completely wrong? Uh, and we do do that in lots of areas uh, of the law. Um, now, Justice Thomas, who I clerked for, he, of all the justices, does not really believe in stare decisis. And I think it's really because he's influenced by Plessy versus Brown. You know, as a, you know, as a young black kid growing up in the segregated South, I can totally understand why he thinks the Supreme Court should just get it right. Don't, why should you pay any deference to racists on the Supreme Court who thought it's okay to have a black compartment and a white compartment on a streetcar in New Orleans, which was the facts of Plessy. So, uh, you know, you go in various gradations beyond that about whether star decisis is a good idea or not. But the, in Latin, it just means you stand on what's decided. You know, I, I should still, you know, James's uh, joke, you know, star decisis sounds like a Roman hook. Star decisis is very seductive in the sense that you don't have to re-decide stuff. You can always say, oh, they thought about it. They did it in the past. We don't want to change it. We don't over. Now, here's the central constitutional problem. Is star decisis is in the world all around us. So, for example, in your everyday lives, most of what you do is decided by state law. That's all decide that's all controlled by star decisis, too. The problem is the Constitution doesn't say anything about star decisis for federal law. And the second thing is it's extremely hard to correct the mistakes of the Supreme Court. So suppose some mistake is made with contract law or an accident here in California. The state legislature can immediately pass a law and fix it. So we don't so it's okay for the courts to keep faith with past decisions because it's easy to correct mistakes. If you if the Supreme Court gets something wrong, you've got to get two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, and three-quarters of the state legislatures to agree to overturn the court. Or you have to have a world where the court can easily overturn its past mistakes. Otherwise, you lock in terrible decisions like segregation forever. So that's I think uh to me, I actually, you know, I tend to agree with Justice Thomas. I think the court should get things right. If the people don't like it, then they can always change the personnel of the court. I don't see why we should let the mistakes of the past govern us today. So on stare decisis, I'm aware, layman that I am, that Justice Scalia held a different view, different in some regard from Justice Thomas. So what's the of, of the six Broadly speaking, conservative or originalist justices on the court now, I'm including the chief justice, although you may differ with me on that, but of the, let's just put it this way, of the originalist justices on the court right now, if Justice Thomas anchors the skeptical towards stare decisis position, what's the range of opinion towards on stare decisis among the conservatives? So I would say Gorsuch and Alito. Uh, Gorsuch is probably very close to Thomas. Gorsuch is actually quite a I mean, quite a radical guy, and you're going to see that emerge more and more. He's a great believer in natural law, for example, which uh, only Justice Thomas has been, and which would call for many things to be overturned. Then I think Justice Alito, who is very conservative by nature, so he uh, conservatives tend to like stare decisis because it means. Don't do anything too radical today. You right. know, you're hemmed in by tradition and the past. And then I would say you know, this is why uh, you know uh, Rob was asking about you know what's what's it going to be like for liberals. We don't really know how far the new Trump justices will go. Uh, they're all they've all given indications that they are 
not as respectful of stare decisis as say Justice Scalia was, which means there's gonna be more conservative decisions coming out over time across a broad range of issues. The one person who's closest to obeying stare decisis, and again, this gets on to this, what's gonna happen, particularly in abortion, is Chief Justice Roberts. I don't think Chief Justice Roberts has any <clears throat> particular sort of love of stare decisis, but it's, I think, the tool he uses to try to lower the stakes and keep the court out of politics. You know, the more you work within the cases of the past, then the more you can say, look, I'm not doing politics. Stop attacking me, Pat Leahy or Barack Obama. I'm just, you know, I'm just playing within the, the you know, the rules, the, the uh, borders set out by past decisions. I'll give you a good example of how this cut on abortion. So there were these two identical statutes passed by Texas and Louisiana I think we, you guys talked about it a few years ago where uh, the state said, if you're going to do abortions in our state, you have to have admitting privileges right. to the local hospitals there. The first time this case came up, uh, Chief Justice Roberts voted that the law was, was okay. It was a reasonable regulation on abortion. He lost. She, uh, the five justices, uh, there were still, you know, Justice Kennedy was still around then. So the court struck that law down. <clears throat> but Chief Justice Roberts dissented. A few years later, just two years ago, the identical law came back up from a different state, Louisiana. And this time, he upheld it. Right? Even though he was on record saying he thought the law was fine, this time he struck the law down and he said, I feel like I have to follow the past decisions of the court, even though I'm on record saying I thought it was wrong. If he does that again... You know, I could see him upholding Roe or Casey because of his belief in stare decisis. Plus, he doesn't want the court to be the center of all these political attacks. You know, I'm sure he thinks that if they were to strike down Roe, it would cause, I mean, it would cause the politics to go bonkers and the court, the Supreme Court being the main target. In right. But when you talk about the mistakes of the past sometimes coming back to haunt us in the present, a lot of people point to the inevitable resurgence and repetition and reappearance of the McRib sandwich. If <laughs> they don't like it, people like you who are, of course, big fans of it, you're on the record about that. And, you know, sometimes we wonder how many calories are in that thing. But then there's the sunny optimism of John Yu that says it's not the calories at all. It's the delicious experience of it. But I got to tell you, calories matter. But there's more to eating and good health than counting your calories. The science is clear. A healthy gut microbiome with a good bacteria that help our bodies process food is key to a healthy lifestyle. But now we're learning that there, there's a connection between your gut microbiome health and type 2 diabetes. Our sponsor, Pendulum Glucose Control, is the first and only medical probiotic that's designed to manage A1C and blood glucose levels for the health of your microbiome. What exactly is your gut microbiome? It's the vast array of microorganisms that help you digest your food. And while they may be small, these guys are darned important. And with Pendulum, they can get the help they need to help you manage your type 2 diabetes. Over time, people with type 2 diabetes lose the gut bacteria that helps digest fiber and manage our blood glucose level. It's not good. Diet and exercise is still important. But if you've struggled to maintain your levels with diet and exercise alone, your gut microbiome might need attention and some help. Pendulum Glucose Control helps fill in the gaps by providing the first and only probiotic designed to manage blood glucose and A1C levels. With Pendulum, you can feel in control of your levels, not the other way around. Take control of your glucose levels today. Try Pendulum Glucose Control for 90 days. If you're not satisfied with your levels, get your money back. Visit 
PendulumLife.com to find more. And use the promo code RICOCHET for 20% off your first bottle of membership. That's P-E-N-D-U-L-U-M-L-I-F-E.com. Promo code RICOCHET. PendulumLife.com. Ricochet. We thank Pendulum for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. I got a bunch of questions, but Rob is... Uh, is he is he champing at the bit or is he chomping at the bit? I believe I I, I believe no I believe I believe you're you're champing. I think you're champing. Not chomping or champing at the champing. Is it not? Champing, he had some McRibs. He wouldn't be champing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do. I do. I'm a pendulum user and, and consumer, and I do enjoy my pendulum. Um. So because we talked about this right before we went away, we, how openly. Do the Supreme Court justices talk about those political issues? And I guess when we say po- there are a bunch of different ways to say politics, right? One is to get involved in politics. One is to like pick a stupid political. I mean, you know, the Bush v. Gore was involved in politics, but there really was no way of, to avoid it. It was going to end up there. Um, when you say involved in politics, do you mean uh, uh, deciding something that has a gigantic political ramifications for the country, or do you mean, as I suspect, uh, they're going to come for us in the court. The court obviously, traditionally, has a very tenuous uh, 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 position in the federal and the government. Always has. It's just it's there. It, we 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 obey it because we obey it. They don't have a an army. Um, and the la- the Rob, the Rob now is like the little angel on the side of Budo Budo's head in Animal House, right? <laughs> right. Bring nice things into yeah. Chief Justice Roberts's exactly ear. <laughs> right. But but then on the other hand, and John, you is the devil <laughs> saying, "Strike it do down." It, yeah. do it. But if you are if you are, isn't it? It's easier for conservatives who are not on the court, just because on a human yeah. level, than it is for conservatives who are on the court to do something and to advocate something that might make. Put the court in peril, and we, we we already know what that peril will look like, right? It's going to look like 700 Supreme Court justices by 2027. Um, that you know, something like that, chance. right? Packing the, literally chance. packing the court with more justices when you have a chance. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're Alito or Thomas or I mean, even probably su- su- Supreme Court Justice Roberts, that that won't you do anything to avoid that? Isn't your institutional loyalty going to be greater? Than your loyalty to um, even original intent. That's a. I mean, that that is the. So Peter asked the first dilemma of the court in terms of the law, which is what do you do about stare decisis? And you, you Rob, you're asking the central dilemma. <laughs> sure. All study of constitutional law is going on for the last. That's my habit. Years. I get right to the nuts. <laughs> you get right to the point. Yeah. Uh, and that's so the fancy phrase we use in law schools. It's called the counter-majoritarian problem. Every <laughs> course, we got you a can't, fancy word. Yeah, you can't on, just be well, normal for five <laughs> seconds. You have to come up with from a thing. From now on, known as the Rob Long McRib dilemma. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, but the, the the basic problem is every time the Supreme Court acts, it's essentially blocking the majority. Right. And then, the, but where does it get the power? Why do five unelected, <clears throat> life-term justices get to block? 51 or even 100% of the country from doing what it wants. It has no democratic root the way the president or Congress do, or the states. So that's the problem, Rob, is how do you, as a court, decide to use that little bit of political capital you have when everyone's going to be against you. And the only reason they obey you, the people obey you, is because they accept your legitimacy. You know, the, <clears throat> Alexander Hamilton said the 
courts do not have the sword, which he said was the executive, or will, which the people's will, which is the legislature. All they have is judgment, and all they can ask is that the people voluntarily obey Biden. So this is, this is um, you're right, there's different kinds of politics. There's uh, partisan politics, Republican versus Democrat. I don't yeah. think the justices think or talk that way right, right. at all. There's uh, ideological politics, conservative versus liberal, which has gone on at the court from the beginning right? because we have different visions of how – what you're talking about is uh, institutional politics, You know, the, putting aside who's Republican, Democrat, or how does the court vis-a-vis the other branches preserve its power? And so the way you talk is talk about it is the way I think Chief Justice Roberts thinks about it and would probably talk about it, Vasquez, which is – and actually, you know who actually said this in public? Just a few days ago, I'm sure you didn't read his speech, but he said exactly what you said, as Chief, as, as Justice Breyer. Hmm. He gave a speech up at the Supreme Court and he, at, at Harvard Law School, which is the same thing. Actually, he's one of the at Harvard Law School, and he, he said exactly what you said, Rob. He said uh, the court just depends on legitimacy. Our I mean, grip in the democracy is tenuous. We shouldn't don't do anything radical. Okay, I'm a I'm a moderate yeah. conservative justice. You're a very conservative justice. We have this thing. I mean, I don't, I'm I'm just asking socially how it works in chambers. Do I knock on your door and I say, look, John, you and I know probably Roe is misdecided, and it's terrible decision, faulty. Yeah, but you and I both know we can't overturn it because of the other non-legal, non-constitutional, the penumbra, political penumbra, to use it, to co-opt a phrase, around this issue would put the whole thing in jeopardy. The, uh, what you and I do, our robes, the lunch, everything. And they let the riffraff in. This is what the Hollywood guy thinks is important about being a justice. The well, robes, but look, I, 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 I also believe they're human. I mean, is, is yeah. that something that is openly discussed there in chambers privately? Is that something that they already know each other thinks about and, then, and they, and they kind of look at each other? Is that so, how, how openly do they, as the justices of the Supreme Court, say, let's not step in it? <clears throat> or so is it all just kind of glamorized and weasel worded the way the broader, you would like to weasel word everything? Can I? Point. I would even strengthen. I, can I? Can I strengthen Rob's point? It wasn't Justice Jackson who said the Constitution is not a suicide pact. And so, if you're the moderate conservative, you say we do not have the right to tear the country the, apart. Uh, justices safe, basically, this in opinions and speeches. You know, Peter mentioned. Chief Justice, I mean, Justice Jackson, he makes similar comments. They actually say this all the time, but they don't say it specifically that way, right? They'll say the court is an institution, depends on right, legitimacy. We threaten the legitimacy when we seem to be political. And if you were a dissenter, if Rob was writing the dissenting opinions here, he would say, you're just taking over an issue that's you know, settled and you're turning it into a political you know, tsunami in the course of center, no one will pay attention to it. undermines the legitimacy of the court to do other important things, like things that are really unpopular, like defending the rights of suspects from the police right. or standing for free speech where someone wants to say something unpopular. So, uh, so that's one. The second thing is, yeah, I could totally see exactly Rob's scenario happening. You know, I'm sure Rob's writing a screenplay right now for the very popular miniseries on the Supreme Court. Yeah, really popular. How it decides. Don't hold your breath, you. (laughs) So, you know, know, first of all, the one interesting thing, uh, uh, this goes to your, the justices, I think, of anybody in Washington do their own work. 
and they're building, they're all in one building. They only right. have four assistants each, and they're all on the same floor. So it's extremely easy for Chief Justice Roberts to tiptoe down to Justice Kavanaugh, who I think is the person he would talk to and make these arguments to, go into his office and say, look, Brett, you and I think Roe is wrong. A lot of liberal scholars have said it's wrong. But if we're going to overturn Roe, we have to do it slowly, gradually, not all at once. Right. And that way we preserve the court's legitimacy because we just chip away at a faulty structure and not trigger some kind of nuclear bomb off. And the court will see it, and if they want to change our direction, then they can put new people into office who can appoint new justices, and we'll get the message. Right. And, and that's and that's 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 actually not an illegitimate way of thinking. I think for the court, the, uh, the illegitimate thing would be for Chief Justice Roberts to come in and say, you know, Brett, if we strike down Roe, the Democrats are going to win the House and the Senate and increase their majorities, and then they're going to pack the court. You know, thinking about it in terms of Republican versus Democrat, I don't think they think that way, and I think that would be illegitimate. But, you know, wondering about when to, you know, what Peter's mm -hmm. asking, when to strike down, when to ignore stare decisis is a decision that involves the independence of the courts and the so, long-term future judicial so review. So just, I think that's can I ask you just historically, the, the, the historical rhyming history, and then I'm done, right? Plessy <clears throat> versus Ferguson, separate but equal. Um, the irony, of course, is that... Uh, uh, the the plaintiff or the defendant, I guess I can't remember who which which it was, wasn't arguing um, that uh, uh, that segregation was wrong. Really, he was arguing that he should be considered white, which is sort of a very Louisiana. You're saying thing. it was irrational yeah. because he had, he was. I'm, I think seven, eight. Yeah, I'm white, so it's white. okay to have a separate. It's okay to be segregated, yeah. but I'm, I shouldn't be there, right? Um, and then turn, overturned in 54, essentially, by Brown versus Board, right? Is that kind of fair? Yep. And Brown versus Board could be overturned because it was sort of – I'm stop me. I'm, I'm asserting these things that could be wrong because those were regional issues that if you were a northeastern liberal or a west coast liberal, because, like, you didn't really – it wasn't – it wasn't urgent for you. This was a southern issue, not a national issue. Isn't that? Yeah, I, I would stop you there as being wrong because okay. the point was wow, that's bad. Right, all of us as citizens, we have an individual right yeah, to be yeah, free I, from the government using race. Yeah, so yeah, okay, I get, it's I get a national yeah. issue. All right, I get you. Okay, fine, fine. But just, just follow me <laughs> here for like, okay, one fine. second. In, individual rights, if you want to uh, go there, okay. fine. <laughs> right, right. Um, the Bill of Rights, fine. All right, go ahead. Just Rose overturned tomorrow, say. Yep. Uh, abortion's not going to be illegal in Massachusetts. Or Minnesota or Virginia, probably. Uh, probably not illegal in Florida. Probably not illegal in you know New Mexico and Arizona. Probably. Um, we're just talking about a handful of states where to be illegal. Um, everywhere else would be a fight. Maybe not even Texas. Texas would be a fight. Um, if you're a Supreme Court justice, wouldn't I respond to uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts in my office and sit down there and tell you this and like, well, what are you talking about? We're talking about right. a few states. Like, it, if if not, I mean, it wouldn't be this gigantic uh, a tsunami which would result actually impacting the court with a bunch of liberals. It would actually maybe it would be the way out of this knot. Um, and maybe that is what the court should be doing: is like finding a way out of this thicket. So that everyone feels like the issue is being decided properly. I mean, is that completely 
naive? No, that's, in fact, I, I that's the correct you argument. put your finger on how they got into it and then how to get themselves out of it. They got into it because of Brown, because there was a majority in the country that wanted to right. have like colorblind it. schooling. They didn't want segregation, but there was a region of the country, the South, which had a lock on the Senate right, and could filibuster, right? They filibuster right. every civil rights right. law there was. And uh, basically what the Supreme Court did in Brown was nationally popular, was actually what the majority of the people wanted against the region. That, I think, led the court into this trap of becoming more and more energetic, taking over more and more issues, where what they were doing was kind of popular, but the, and this goes to your point, how to get out of it, they create this pathology of taking away from the political process a lot of the important issues of our lives. Abortion, it's not just abortion, religion, the place of religion in mm -hmm. public life, race, you know, affirmative action, guns, you know, booze, you go down Free speech, what are we going to do with social media? Go down, down, down. Those have all been taken over by the courts, which means that a lot of people who care about those issues because we care about our politics cannot affect our society's decisions other than by pressuring the courts and who serves on them. So the way out of it, I think, Robert, is return them to politics. Here's a good example. When it comes to like Roe versus Wade versus not, uh, abortion versus non-abortion as policy, courts can't compromise. Right? They have to decide on principle. Not only do you take these issues away from politics, but you remove the ability for deliberation and negotiation and bargaining, which maybe everybody leaves politics half satisfied and half pissed off. Maybe right. that's a good bargain. Right. So maybe the answer is if the courts pull out, as you say, a lot of these decisions where the court would reverse past decisions that Peter was suggesting and get rid of them, not follow stare decisis, it doesn't mean abortion is banned throughout the country. Right. It doesn't. It just means it goes back to the states, like the death penalty, like euthanasia, like a lot of life and death decisions. And then you and me and Peter and James, we can have, we can negotiate and bargain and argue about it in politics, and then we accept the outcome in a way we don't when it's just imposed on us by five unelected lifetime judges. It seems to me. So that's the way out. Is the court by getting out of this business will actually, I think, make. It's longer-term survival, more assured. John, how will uh, – I'm sorry. I, to close out the, the, the segment on on um, the Mississippi case on abortion, what's your prediction? How will they handle it? So I, I, uh, so I have a very liberal dean at uh, Berkeley here. And what? We're doing our panel. What? Shocking. <laughs> I, I bet him a dollar that the court would not overturn Roe. Because yeah, that's from trading places, right? Right. One dollar. So I bet him a dollar that – the court would not overturn Roe. It might, you know, uphold the Mississippi law, you know, which says, you know, abortions after 15 weeks are prohibited, or it might cut the law back a little bit. But I don't think they're, this goes roughly, I don't think they're institutionally ready to unleash the political firestorm that would erupt if they overturned Roe all at once. So I think what they'll do is they'll chip away at it. There'll be more decisions to come where they further narrow the right to abortion until maybe five or six years from now when they will really decide. But when you win those dollars in the bet, don't just waste them on a McRib sandwich. John, you need to invest them. And when people think about investing, they think about charitable giving as well. Yes, you've got money. You want it to do good, right? Well, I, I'm happy to tell you that we're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the principled and tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving. The Chronicle of Philanthropy recently reported that, apart from the pandemic, fewer middle-class Americans are giving to charity. 
The Economist, moreover, reports charitable giving in America is being dominated by wealthy liberal donors who are driving the agenda in Washington, D.C. Do you feel called upon to help buck that trend and give to the causes that foster freedom, strengthen our communities? If so, Donors Trust can help. If you want to grow your charitable impact, open a donor-advised fund with Donors Trust and promote the organizations that are going to bat for everyday families at the local, state, and federal level. A donor-advised fund is like your own charitable investment account. With a fund, you can manage your charitable giving, but in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, and private. Donors Trust is unique, working with donors at all levels who share a commitment to the freedoms and the principles that make America great. Donors Trust's philanthropic advisors can help you sharpen your giving, discover new groups, and define your charitable legacy. So join the community of liberty-minded donors at Donors Trust. To see how a donor-advised fund could benefit your giving, go to DonorsTrust.org slash ricochet for a free copy of our donor prospectus. That's DonorsTrust.org slash ricochet. And we thank Donors Trust for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. Enough SCOTUS. Let's uh, cast our gaze to the other side of the world. China, Taiwan, it's been a week of provocations, lots of invasions of their technical airspace. Uh, we had a sub-collide with something in the South China Sea. Gosh, I wonder what that could have been. What's your take on uh, what's shaping up? Is this Xi just attempting to change the subject from domestic problems? Are they exploiting Joe Biden's possible weakness? I don't know how many can look at the guy and say that he's not at the top of his game and ready to respond in a second, but, you know, who knows what they see. Or both. I'm glad you asked me that, Gene. So this is much more fun to me than the Supreme Court. <laughs> yes. Which is uh, one thing we I think we make a mistake of in the United States sometimes is we don't put ourselves in the shoes of the enemy or our rivals enough. So if you're Xi, what are you doing? You want Taiwan. You don't want to have a war over Taiwan. You know, war could threaten the stability of your regime, kill lots of your own citizens, destroy a lot of your military. The United States is still far more powerful militarily than China. So what do you do? You're gradually, step by step, pushing farther and farther to see if you can get it without going to war ever. And so it's the same strategy they pursued in the South China Sea. First, they build little islands. We don't do anything about it. Then they put people on the islands. We don't do anything about it. Then they put, now they have, right, missile installations and airfields on those islands. We still didn't do anything about it. Now they're using ships, their naval ships, to drive other countries' vessels out of the area unless they get their permission. They'll do the same thing with Taiwan. They are, everything they're doing is just testing whether we're willing to, whether it's not whether we have the resources to stop them, we do. It's whether we have the will, the political will to do it. Um, this is actually quite, you know, so people, uh, okay, Rob's really going to like this. So, uh, Dr. Strangelove, one of the great movies, actually sure. makes fun great of movie. a great strategist named Herman Kahn, who essentially invented the field of nuclear strategy and deterrence. Deterrence is the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear. Protect. Everything China is doing is what he would have predicted, right? Which is, right, the, when you, you go to war, it's a combination of whether you have the resources, but whether you have the political will, too. Nobody really knows what political will on the other side is. So what you do is you test it, and you keep testing it. And what Xi has seen in Afghanistan is that the Biden administration doesn't have a lot of political will to use the military to defend its interests. It's seeing it can fly hundreds of these bombers around Taiwan. We don't do anything about it. Right? It can start playing games in the Taiwan Straits and deploying the Navy. We talk a lot, but we're not doing a whole lot about it. So right, we're getting this gives the Chinese the sense that they can take Taiwan without even a shot being fired. 
They, we didn't do anything about Hong Kong either. If they fail to sign a meaningless climate accord, we will be really cross. <laughs> we just we just handed back the uh, chief uh, you know the chief executive of Huawei, uh, right? In exchange for hostages. If you were the Chinese, everything you've seen on our part, other than the sub deal with the Australians, everything we've seen, everything you would have seen as a Chinese strategist on American part is, we're not going to fight over Taiwan. So. Right. Right. Why not gradually come to take it peacefully? Hong Kong's different than Taiwan, though, isn't yeah. it? I mean, Hong Kong, they were there. Yeah. They had infiltrated the institutions. They had everything that they could just simply pump and pump and pump, and all of a sudden you have security state arises. That's not the situation with Taiwan. They have to go there. They have to climb on the beach. They have to enter the city. Now, what I would do is what they've been doing, which is what they did in Hong Kong, which is I would buy off the elites. So if you look at the economy of Taiwan, a lot of these big technology yeah. companies – Right, they really make the products in mainland China, right? They just buy off the wealthy companies and families. Famously, Foxconn is a Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. right. They're doing exactly the same thing. Again, the China, I would think, doesn't want to have a war against Taiwan when it'll just fall into their lap in a few years just by pursuing this gradual strategy. Peter has an interesting point. Like, what if we? What if China gave us a few meaningless things that Biden really wants, like a climate change yeah. accord, a trade deal? Right, um, you know, some reduction of tensions, helping with North Korea and Iran, right? And in exchange for, yeah, let us right, make more encroachments into Taiwan. That's what I would do if I were the Chinese. And they, then that people who are, are pursuing a strategy, they've met with no, no defeats yet. The Chinese are succeeding. The, to me, the significance of Hong Kong is it shows, by contrast, as you rightly pointed out, if you're watching the United States in Beijing, you by now have concluded the Biden administration is unwilling to pay any price. What does Hong Kong show? They are willing to pay a price. Moving into Hong Kong cost them a lot in their international mm -hmm. reputation. It's hard to imagine that this submarine deal with Australia would have come off if they hadn't moved into Hong Kong. And it also, I haven't seen figures on this, but it must have complicated the capital inflows into China. 60% of foreign investment in China ran through Hong Kong institutions. They at least risked reducing that inflow. But they've now shown the world, look, when it comes to a choice between free markets and democracy on the one hand and control of the by the communist Chinese Communist Party on the other, we will take control even if it costs us. Well, all right. right, that's interesting. and That's a sign of their political will. Correct. That's the point I'm trying to make. We've shown that we lack will. They've demonstrated to the whole world that they're moving. They have will. Yeah, look, look the, whole, the hopeful story on, on the United States part is why don't we try the same thing we did to the Soviets during the Cold War, which is contain them. We don't aggressively try to reverse what's going on. But things in China are unstable. Things are turning against them. You know, there are people who say their demographics are going to be a disaster mm -hmm. in a mm -hmm. few years. Their economy is built on, you know, you know fraudulent loans and state-owned businesses, and it can't keep going on very long. And so, rather than trick, this is this is people who say it's so the comparison. So let me phrase it. It's not. It's the comparison is to World War One. These guys are like the Kaiser's Germany. Right. They want to go to war in this in this window where they are ascendant and where the United States is declining. Even in the long term, we're going to be fairly stable, and China could really go down in the dumps. And so 
the people designed the Cold War strategy look, learned a lesson in World War I. Just contain them. Let them burn themselves out. Let them internally collapse. Just mm. defensively prevent them from expanding. And over the long run, freedom and free markets and the American democratic system will win. You know, we should have more confidence. And that's what pains me. When I hear Joe Biden saying, oh, we got to do things like China, <laughs> that's, a, that's what really worries me because the thing that the people during the Cold War had, I think, was a confidence that the American system would win right. out over the long run. I think oh, wait, can I, can I, I offer a different example, a different uh, thing? Uh, uh, the Cold War was about communism in the United States, an ideology that the Russians were going to take, you know, turn, uh, take Eastern Europe and make it all of Europe, and then they were gonna, we were gonna vote for communists here, and it was gonna be a giant communist world. I feel like it's the world the, for China today. The argument isn't World War One; it's World War Two. I mean, if they had a choice, they would want a greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. And the the mistake the Japanese made wasn't a greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere; it was Pearl Harbor. So, what would happen <laughs> if the Japanese had not attacked Pearl Harbor? Um, I don't know, but I, I guarantee you we question. wouldn't have been landing in uh, the Philippines. We wouldn't have been landing in Iwo Jima. None of that. We would have, you know, there would have been no battle of Midway. There would have been nothing. We, we weren't fighting. And we were perfectly happy to let uh, an imperial, backward um, nation become the area, the regional hegemon. And aren't we today the same? I mean, is anybody really saying, oh, get back to bed? Oh, we have to draw. Is anybody really worried about the borders of China? I mean, if, if one thing is about China is they have, they have no interest in bombing Pearl Harbor. I can, I can, I'm almost 100% certain they're not going to so do that. There's interest, so here's, the latest historical research, very interesting, says that actually FDR wanted there to be a war in the Pacific first, because what he really wanted to do is get into a war with Europe. Yeah, they both said stuff that, yeah. about, oh, did they know Pearl Harbor was going to happen? That's like, it's beyond the point. FDR did a lot of aggressive things against China to provoke them. I mean, Japan, to provoke them, cutting off oil, right. yeah. steel. The yeah. point, you know, if, if you look at the map, the Philippines aren't all that far from China. We have huge military and army bases there, you know, very far no, from the right. United States. Right. So, uh, that's, that's one difference. The other, but the other difference, Rob, is that Back then, Asia was not the future of the world economy the way it is where it is now. So you're right. We wouldn't have cared back then who was in charge of Korea or the Philippines or Thailand or Indonesia. But now you can see the weight of the economic world is already moving to Asia if it's not already signaling me there. Now a lot of our economy is going to grow because of our relations with those Asian countries that, you know, 100 years ago weren't all that important. Now it's Western Europe that's kind of in the decline, and I, you know, I, I could go on at length about that. You know, Western Europe, they're important, but they're not as economically important for the for our future as you know those populations and resources in Asia. And it's an area where the United States, for the investment of not that much resources, had enormous success during the Cold War. The way this is going, this is going to turn into the the first two part weekly podcast in ricochet history but why? i have to ask one what, more question no no why do you have to I ask, have to ask question? One more question. <laughs> because we're going on and on and on but i was like yeah, we're going on and on and on and i can tell i'm looking i have i have i have rob and james up there little boxes on my screen right now neither one of them is remotely bored with you usual, yeah. um, well not any more than usual any more than usual excuse yeah. me so here's the question 
So what's at stake? We have this conflict. I'm perfectly willing to call it a new Cold War. It differs in many regards from the struggle with the Soviet Union, but they're communists, and we're not. As Rob rightly pointed out, the Soviets, actually they remained, I checked on this the other day, uh, they remained formally committed. It was in writing in important Soviet documents. They remained formally committed to a worldwide communist revolution until the day the Soviet Union ceased to exist. Formally speaking, I'm told, mm -hmm. so, do, so do the Chinese, so are the Chinese, but nobody really believes they take it all that seriously, whereas the Soviets had admirers and friends across America. There was a Communist Party, there was a Socialist Party. Lord knows. They believe their own bull. They, <laughs> in English departments across America, there are still Soviet sympathizers, right? And, um, and history departments. The Chinese have none of that. Okay. So what's at stake if they don't want a worldwide communist revolution? Suppose they win the Cold War. What does that mean for us? What's really at stake to our way of life? So the, well, the Chinese don't have an, I don't think they're Leninists the way, right, as you said, the Soviets are. But they do seem to be acting as if, it's almost like, you know, we used to be, we used to say mm -hmm. America wanted a world that was safe for democracy, right? That's sort of the justification for wanting other countries to be democratic. The Chinese seem to have the same idea, but it's they want the world to be safe for dictators. Like they don't want to have countries all around them that are democracies. They want to seem to have a system, right? They are supporting all around the world countries that are slipping into authoritarianism, right? They support Iran. They support Venezuela, right, which is the violation of our Monroe Doctrine, by the way. And they, they, they are, the, the area they're pushing forward is Central Asia, right? all these countries where uh, democracy really hasn't taken strong root. So that's the longer-term problem for us is China, I think, would like to have a world of authoritarian governments. And if you want to do that, then the United States and Europe are problems <laughs> there you know, because we have the opposite view, right? We think the world is made safer because of democracy. Uh, so I think there is this – it's not really ideological. Like there's no fancy Marxist theory behind it. I think it's just uh, – but there is – power. Yeah, the, it's a difference. Both countries uh, are not just – so we remember there were these – like Kissinger and people like this, they like to think nations are just uh, billiard balls, right? They're just balls bouncing around. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what's inside the ball. Right? That's the classic theory of foreign relations, international It's Newtonian. But right. actually both the United States – the United States has always been – the United States has always been the radical country, right? We want to change other people's governments, right? We want to – Make the, we never accepted that. We always want to change what's in the build, inside the ball, too. We want Western Europe, Japan, anybody we can make, we want them to be a democracy. China, uh, interesting, is the same way. They want other countries to be authoritarian dictatorships with this surveillance state and a command and control economy. I think it's quite, in the long run, hostile to our interests. If you want to imagine the future, Winston, imagine a Uyghur slave made Nike stomping on a human face forever. <laughs> swap, swap the boot for the good sneaker. John, we could go on for another nine hours, and uh, I know you'd be game for it, but we got to go. And so we thank you so much. It's been great, and we'll have you back again as soon as possible. Oh, thank you, guys. It's been great. I'm off now to McDonald's. Get the McRibs coming out in a few weeks. They're bringing it Audio back. <laughs> Are you going to camp out? Oh, yeah, there's lines. Come on. <laughs> John, you handles the Supreme Court China. Next time you're back, let's do some fusion, shall we? Fusion.
Yeah, just let's solve nuclear energy. Oh, I thought you were talking yeah. about Asian fusion. Yeah. No. Oh, like, I was like, oh, spam. finally we're going to talk about spam sushi at last. We've never had a show about spam. Spam, shoot. Cut him off. Cut him off right now, Blue Yeti. I am from the state of, of spam. Of course, Hormel spam it was invented here. So wow. I have a little bit of moral standing to be proud about that. And it's funny, if those of you who are not watching this in the Zoomcast, when John showed up, he was not in a suit and tie, which is his normal mufti. He had a plain, fine shirt open with the collar. It was almost like John was in incognito mode because we didn't recognize him. Yeah, incognito mode. You ever browsed incognito mode? It's probably not as incognito as you think. And why would it be? Incognito mode, like you know, the Chrome browser itself, is a Google product. And Google's made its fortune by tracking your movements online. There's even a $5 billion class action lawsuit against the company in California where it's accused of secretly collecting user data. Google's defense, <clears throat> quote, incognito does not mean invisible, end quote. So, well, yeah, well, how do you actually make yourself as invisible as possible online? You use ExpressVPN like we do. Turns out that even in incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked, and data brokers still get to buy and sell your data. Great. One of these data points is your IP address, right? Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server, and your IP address is masked. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to identify you or to harvest your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use. No matter what device you're on, your phone, your laptop, or even your smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button, and you've got instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with a number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash ricochet and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash ricochet. Go to expressvpn.com slash ricochet to learn more. Did I mention three extra months free? Yeah. We thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. Guys, before we go, there's, uh, of course, the whole penumbra of emanations of privacy don't seem to exist when you are a cinema senator and you are heading into the loo. Then, as the pre- <laughs> president reminded us, that being followed into the bathroom by hectoring protesters uh, happens to everybody. And uh, you know, it's just part of the process now. Is that right? Is, is, is this the new, I mean, of course, in being ridiculous, back in the Trump administration, people were advised to follow them into restaurants and put it in their face. And, but um, what I, it's amusing is that they don't think that these increasing de- definitions of incivility are going to ever come back to haunt them. Somebody was protesting outside of a school board member, and David French was wagging his finger because you can't go there. But they've gone there. They've camped up there. They've, they've, they've taken a mortgage on there. And I don't ever see that change in the near term. Do you? Well, no. I mean, you, 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 as I said at the beginning, like you, you, if, you believe, if you take as, your, you know, give, as a given that Kristen Cinema is single-handedly thwarting the will of the people through some bizarre mm-hmm. uh, extra-constitutional sleight of hand rather than simply votes, um, then yeah, you got to follow her everywhere. And if you take as your as a given that this three trillion dollar uh, package to spending bills um, are the difference between life and death, that if you vote no for them, then people will die, and if you vote yes for them, then you will be giving life to people. Well, then yeah, you got to follow somebody. You got to follow them to the bathroom. Follow them everywhere. My God, it's like a it's a life saving bill. Without it, people will die. 
if on the other hand like most americans you think what are you talking about it's like this is government spending it's going to be a lot of it's going to be pork right. and useless some of it's never going to happen some of it's going to be thwarted some of it's going to be voted out in two years um this is stupid it's we're you know like we're 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 we're, we're politicking here then that just looks insane that looks insane and i think it does yeah yeah I mean, and it is insane, by the way. It is—it's an insane thing to do. And the idea that somehow Kristen Cinema is going to pay for it by the by losing the progress the progressive Democrats in Arizona is kind of crazy. Like that's what I sort of said on my little weird streaming MSNBC show. It's like it—you it, understand? Some people disagree with you, like, and those people, a lot of them live in Arizona. Like that's I don't know why that's like that's not news. Like the I, the trick is to persuade, not to there are people who disagree with you, not pretend they don't exist, not wish mm-hmm. them into the cornfield. Somebody was it was actually was it one of you guys? Was it John Funds? Somebody was ran into Kristen Cinema at a conference somewhere. I can't remember the background, but it was a conservative, one of my guys. I can't remember now who told me this story, and there she was, and they chatted a little bit. And my, the person telling the story had announced that he was conservative on this position, this position, and this position. And she replied, oh, you sound just like my dad. In other words, you're like, you sound like a human being to me. I don't agree with you, but you sound like a member of my own family. Right, right. I can get along with people like you because right. I have all my life. And that is not, you must die, you're evil, we must overcome. It's a totally different point of view. She's a... Listen, I think I would disagree with her on a whole list of issues myself, but she's a good politician. She understands the basic point of politics, which is not only all the voters, but all the office holders are human beings. Come on, let's let's figure out a way to get to live together. Also, that's the system. That's what exactly that's what the you're, you're that that there's no around, getting around that. I mean, I, I was probably well, I think like we'll go to see where the how the sausage is made. Like that's the. That is literally the Constitution, is this complicated recipe for sausage. And it's the, the, the bedrock foundational truth of it is you're not going to get what you want. You're just not. And um, even if what you want is great and perfect, it's not, you're not going to get that. You're going to get some weird regional um, adjustments all across the board, and you're just going to have to swallow it. And people have a hard time, depending on where they are, have a hard time. And I think people have the hardest time when they have the worst hand. Like the the, the Demo- I mean, the, the idea that progressive Democrats see their, their position in the Senate as powerful when it's a 50-50 Senate. It's like, no, no, this is the, the alarm bell should be like, how do we make a deal? How do we get this done? Rather than like, how do I hold out for what I really want? Like, what, on, what planet are you living on? That's not the time now. I'm not saying that won't be the time. I'm, I can see a time when the Democrats have a, a, a huge majority in the House and a huge majority in the Senate and a liberal Democrat in the White House. God forbid. I can see that. Uh, and then they can get anything they want. But now it's not the time. And I, I just find it baffling that, that elemental math is so difficult. You want to increase your majority, go out and run, you know? We won't have a problem if we have a national divorce, because then they'll be over there, we'll be over here, and everybody on either side will agree completely with what they do. There will be no segmentation <laughs> of either audience. There will just be nothing but great unanimity, and that'll be fantastic. 
which is amusing to anybody who's gone to a church that has 17 members, and you find that there's one Sunday there's 14 on this side and three on this side because they've split over some issue of theology or jello right. salad or something. It's human beings' nature to be contentious, no matter how homogenous it may look from the outside. Uh, homogeneity aside, we're done. And we would like to thank everybody listening to the show. We'd like to thank Quip and Pendulum, the Donors Trust and Express VPN. You can support them. You can get great stuff and you support us as well. And uh, also take a minute or nine to leave that five-star review of an Apple podcast. We were number like 62 on the political podcasts last week or something like that, which is good. Except we need to be up in the 50s. We need to be up in the 40s. You can help us do it. Thanks, everybody. Uh, Peter, Rod, and we'll see everyone in the comments at Ricochet 4.0. Next week, boys. Next week. Embrace me. My sweet embraceable you. Embrace me. Join the conversation. I said, Governor, you don't know who I am, but we're scheduled to be on a podcast next week. And he said, oh, really? And I said, I'm sure you, you probably don't. Your staff was scheduled. You'll probably be told about an hour before. He said, no, no. They all have everything on my schedule has to get approved by me. What's the what's the podcast? And I said, Ricochet. And he said, oh, yeah, I know Ricochet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to that one. 
Starry Decisis always sounds like the name of a Roman hooker or, like, you know, or, or, or exotic dancer, maybe. No, it's a Max, General Maximus's girlfriend. <laughs> 